0: Here we are again at Quaker House and it's November. November is a month of greater darkness. The days seem shorter. It's just perception. What's dark and what's light. Certainly there's less time that we can enjoy the brightness of day. But the important thing is to keep the brightness in our hearts. And as practitioners of meditation, we know that to keep the mind bright, it's not enough just to sit down and close your eyes and allow anything to happen in the mind that will. Some people feel that if you sit still long enough, then eventually your mind will get peaceful. Or use a technique that we've been taught, being mindful of the body and mindful of thoughts. And just being mindful is enough. But there's really very specific things that we should be doing when we're meditating. I thought I would reflect on some of these principles so that you could check in to see if this is what you're actually doing. And if it isn't, then perhaps in the next meditation that you do, you could try to more carefully observe how to use and apply these principles as well as just the techniques. Just as when you're driving a car, you might know the rudiments of driving. You have to change gears, You have to hold on to the wheel. You have to point the car in a certain direction. You have to learn the rules of the road. That's all the theory. But then when you get on the road and you're steering and changing gears, then other things happen which aren't in the books. And you have to be adept and quick. You have to be wise and very alert. And you have to make decisions as you're moving that weren't written anywhere. You have to put together the principles that you learned and apply them spontaneously in the context to save a life or to prevent your car from going off the road. And there's no script. So This is how it can feel when you're meditating. Not everything would be described. So we have to drive this vehicle using our mental faculties and our attention appropriately according to what is arising. And because we haven't perfected this technique yet, we haven't attained perfection of the virtues and the qualities of mind that bring us complete knowledge and complete peace, then of course it's impossible for us to rein in the mind all the time the way we want to, to apply these principles and to bring up the qualities of mind perfectly. So that's why we refer to meditation as practice. When you drive your car, you think you're not practicing because you're a driver. But in this dhamma and discipline, it's a training, so we're always beginners because we never know when we sit down what's going to come up, what's going to happen. What do you think I would tell you was very important? Any ideas what I would suggest? Right Yes, right effort. This is really very, very key. If you start to describe the Eightfold Noble Path, those are, of course, the spokes of the wheel, aren't they? The very first one is right view. And then comes right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. But let's go back to right effort you can't pick up one without picking up the other seven. So I can't speak of right effort without the context of all eight spokes of the wheel. But the right effort that I want to emphasize tonight is particularly important when we think we're experts, or we think we all know how to do it, because we all know how to drive a car, So we, and we, we should all know how to drive this vehicle. What is the first effort then? You probably all know the four right efforts. I'll speak of them in language that is my own, and I'll try to simplify them so that you can walk out of here and always remember what type of effort to make. Not only when you're sitting and meditating, but in your daily life. The whole reason that I'm bringing this up tonight is because it's not enough for us to learn a technique that we practice when we sit with our eyes closed. But The real force, the real power of this training of the mind comes when we take it out the door into our daily life. And too often we forget to do that. Because when we practice, very often we're practicing with our eyes closed. And when we're alive, most of the time our eyes are open, except when we're asleep. I mean, when we're out in the world interacting and getting into tight corners in our vehicle, our eyes are open. So we forget what it is we need to do to succeed or to skillfully navigate the vehicle. The very first thing, the very first effort is to abandon what arises in the mind that does not drive or help us drive our vehicle well. Abandon it. Abandoning it won't happen by itself. For example, sitting here tonight and feeling tired and sleepy, and being unable to abandon tiredness or sleepiness, then the body sinks down, sinking tiredness, especially in November when it's cold. And when it's cold, we tend to contract and cover ourselves with warm things. If you put a warm, woolly shawl around yourself, you feel like it's time to take a nap. It's a little suggestion happening. Even if you're sitting in front of a crowd of astute meditators, you might fall asleep. To abandon the sleepiness is hard. One has to make an extra effort. Not only sleepiness, abandoning wrong thoughts, Abandoning distracting experiences or memories. Abandoning whatever comes in the mind that draws or drags our attention away from the present moment. This we should let go of. That's the first royal effort. It's a noble effort. It's not easy. It's not like steering your car on a big, wide highway like highway number 416. Not much traffic, pretty straight road, beautiful scenery. Put your car in cruise control and just keep one little finger on the steering wheel and away you go. But with a mind that is still not perfected in wisdom or perfected in developing the qualities of wholesomeness then we can't put our minds in cruise control. We're not ready to do that. And our vehicle is quite fragile. We have to man the ship skillfully and pay really close attention. We have to be so alert that when any kind of unskillful or unhelpful mind state develops we have to cut it right there. We have to sweep it out. Any thought that would distract us from being attentive to the breath, to the body, to the present moment, to continuity of mindfulness, then naturally we we really must abandon that. Let it go. And abandoning doesn't mean just knowing it. We have to then work with it, so that it leaves us, it abandons us, or we force it out, we invite it to leave. First we have to do so gently, because really the whole purpose of this appropriate attention, of being fully present and attentive to what is arising in the mind, is not to control what arises, so when we see that the mind gets obsessed with a thought and it doesn't leave or we're not able to focus on it and know it for what it is then we have to abandon it otherwise the mind will get dragged away from being present. And this is something we have to do in daily life. If you're walking down the street and you think that you're being very mindful of your feet moving along left, right, or just noticing the sidewalk beneath your feet, or being aware of the people coming and going, noticing your posture. Suddenly you remember somebody you don't like, and you start thinking about that person, thinking, thinking, and you start to feel angry because you remember something they did to you. It's not enough for us to just walk along and think, because we're not making the right effort. The noble effort, the royal effort is to abandon hatred, to let go of those hateful thoughts. Even if you are really interested in having those thoughts, you really want to feel this. You you want to bring up this memory of this person and focus on what they did and review it again. But we must abandon that desire because that desire is behind the production of this thought that keeps the memory alive and going and keeps us obsessed with something that is totally distracting us from purity of mind and does not cultivate for us the qualities that help us to develop the Eightfold Path. And yet we're calling ourselves meditators, experienced. We know the technique, just like a good... We know how to drive a car. So how come we're speeding? Or how come we're passing recklessly? Because we feel like it. Because we have an important engagement, we have to get to it. These are all the typical ways that we rationalize but that doesn't develop good habits legal habits in line with the law habits to be in line with the law of dhamma habits loyal effort then we have to apply a vigilance and sweep away those thoughts and tell ourselves no let that go that's hatred or following desire, it's not skillful. Then come back again to being present. Purify the mind of that hateful feeling and forgive that person. We have to use all the things that we've learned in this training to substitute a feeling of forgiveness for a feeling of anger. It might feel artificial, Maybe you don't feel like forgiving them, but we must at least make an effort to supplant the anger. We have to use a little bit of noble subterfuge here to trick the mind out of buying into this pattern, this habit of practicing anger, practicing greed that will revert us back to our old ways. That's the first effort. The second effort, what would be the second effort? Right, exactly. One thing is that the negative states of mind are already there and we recognize them. But the other thing is to wait in ambush. Be ready to attack I don't want it to sound too violent, but abandon what's unskillful and to, to ambush any negative thought or harmful thought or, or violent thought or even selfish thought or depressed thought, A hateful memory or an evil wish, something that you think, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get that. This is bad. We don't want to go there." So we ambush those thoughts. We chase them out before they can even arrive in the heart. It's like setting up our protective mechanism. This is called defensive driving, isn't it? You wait. If if you're approaching an intersection, you don't just barrel your way through, but you. Notice, is there anybody approaching? And if there is, be ready to break. And so it is when we're practicing meditation. We're always aware of any kind of unwholesome energy that is already sneaking in through the back door. And so our mindfulness is not, it's not a simple mindfulness that only lands on the, on the breath but we completely cover the breath we're not half-hearted we're totally present and we're one single-minded focus and so it is in life wherever we might be any situation we come into the room we come into a building into a home into a situation, into the company of another person, and we try to bring those qualities of present moment awareness, sense of welcome, a sense of trust, even if we know it might be difficult, letting go fear, feeling, being aware, well, the fear is there. Can we supplant it with some kind of measure of trust, whatever we can muster together? or ambush any fear that might be lurking. No, I'm not going to buy into that. Been there, done that, and it doesn't work. To know what works and what doesn't, to know what supports and doesn't support us in this training, here and outside, in daily life. What would be the third effort... To abide, abide in qualities of mind that harden and support, encourage, advance us in our practice. When we notice that the mind is becoming quiet, we don't suddenly get curious about what everyone else is doing and open our eyes. We abide in those good qualities. You notice that your concentration has finally begun to develop a settledness. The mind is bright. Then, even if you feel that you've sat enough, then prolong that. Prolong it. Abide in that. Grow it. Follow it. Devote yourself to it. And when you sit again we try to return to try to remember how you developed that level of concentration and return to it. Review what brought you there and keep developing those particular ways of practice so that you can again abide in those good qualities those good mind states. Here while we're with the breath or with the body or with the nimitta, whatever it might be, the brightness in the mind, the light in the mind, the peace in the heart, the stillness, go to it and abide in it, develop it. Feel gratitude for it. Don't abandon that. Abandon the darkness and abide in the light. In the same way, supposing you come to work and you walk in the door and you sit down at your desk, you see a colleague that you normally say, oh no, to when you see that person. Catch that thought, toss it, and abide in some positive feeling for that person. Well, there isn't anything positive. Ah, oh, Catch that thought. Of course there is. What is it? He's a fellow being in this world. Somebody that comes regularly to work and makes an effort to do their job. But they can't do it. Never mind. They're trying. Don't you think they would like you to like them? Don't you want them to like you? Maybe you feel that they don't. Try to understand the source of your ill will and see that the source of your ill will towards that person is really ignorance. Because if we understand our own hearts deeply then we know that everyone, we know that just the way we are, all beings are the same. We're all made up of the same elements and the mind of every human being The mental process and the physical process operates according to certain physical laws. And so it is with law of Dhamma. All of us operate according to the same law. So every human being somewhere deep in them wants to be happy, wants to be well, wants to be loved, wants harmony, just as we do, and has a right to be well, happy, and live in peace. So why would we want, even for a moment, to contribute not only to their lack of peace, but to our own? Because as soon as we invite and allow an unpeaceful thought, a violent thought, an unfriendly thought in our minds for one moment, then we are contributing to a lack of peace in ourselves. So see the connection. Even if you don't like that person, whatever you don't like in, you, in them is in us. In you. We all have that. Have we purified ourselves yet? That we can go around and rightfully criticize anyone else? Let us pull out the moat in our own eyes, as Jesus said. Let us find the impurity within ourselves and abide in the goodness within us, and then share that. That way we can come to our work each day and bring, bring peace even to the poor, miserable worker that you have borne a grudge against for so long. Give them a smile and see what happens. Offer them a cup of tea. Friend, would you like a cup of tea? Oh, he offered me a cup of tea. I'll come <laughs> now what would be the fourth effort then that we should practice in everyday life yes it's not old, but I think it must exactly perfect the perfect four efforts is finally that whatever good qualities we have not yet developed in our hearts whatever skills in meditation we have not yet developed, let us quickly, swiftly move in the direction of developing them here and now. Approach, attract those qualities to us. Awaken to those qualities. Bring them in. Let them be present within us. Make our hearts huge make space within us for friendliness for warmth for a loving feeling for a peaceful feeling for a nonviolent feeling even to our anger to our our sleepiness whatever we don't like about ourselves forgive grow into saying to ourselves i'm a good person Make an effort to be that good person and keep letting go and forgiving whatever we've done that doesn't bring us joy and bring up a sense of, yes, I I can change. We can't change other people, but we can change ourselves. And in the same way, as we go about our daily lives, try to bring that sense of loving, friendliness, warmth, and joyful feeling to other people. As hard as it might be, of course it's hard. This is the most difficult training a human being can undertake. And then see the result of doing that. Don't just do it for five minutes. Do it for five minutes uh, out of every hour and see the result. Because this is a practice. And if we want to see the fruits of it, then we have to really practice a lot. Then ask yourselves, what am I approaching? And what am I attracting to my life every day? You don't have to tell me. Just review in your mind. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your thoughts? How do you spend your mind? Your waking moments. Where are they spent? Are they spent in idle thoughts, in friendly thoughts, in frustrated thoughts, in in anger, in, in ill will, in joyfulness, in care and concern, in conscientiousness, in sloppiness, in making peace, or in brewing up conflict? Within or with others? How do we live and take responsibility? These four efforts, rightly cultivated, rightly brought to the fore, to predominance in life, bring us the greatest fruits that the Buddha promises through the cultivation of this training in meditation. And through applying the practice itself in our daily lives by developing the virtues of human being of, hu- of our humanity. Developing them, not just taking precepts, but living precepts. Living them bringing them forth moment by moment, time and again, day by day, whether it's dark outside or light. It's like if it's hard to, to drive the car in the winter, then we put on snow tires. We take off the summer tires, we put snow tires on. So we want to drive our Dhamma vehicle through the dredge the drudgery of our lives, then put on snow tires. Put on smile tires. Put on joy tires on your vehicle so that you can navigate, maneuver elegantly, gracefully, skillfully through the most tricky situations, through the most difficult people never thinking for a moment that I'm a difficult person. It's always somebody else. Let's take responsibility knowing that it's hard and finding the ways to work with what we've learned so that we can make it good, make it sweet. It brings to mind a dear friend who visited us a few weeks ago. She's such an inspiring example. She has a daughter who has a personality disorder and is only about 18 years old, but is getting into serious trouble. Cannot act well. Cannot function well on her own, and even with supervision. Always getting into very dangerous situations. and getting in trouble and was homeless for a while. And of course this is a very, very worried, anxious upset and frustrated mother who understands the teaching and is making every effort to brighten her heart to feel compassion for her daughter and not let her mind be dragged down into distress states. Of course she gets distraught but Trying to remain above it all and balance her mind even through this nightmare. She had heard me do a chant you may know this chant Buddha day; Sangama. One day in Pali means I revere, I pay homage to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha. And she came to me and said, one day for the Buddha, one day for the Dhamma, one day for the Sangha, one day. She would take The Buddha, as her mantra for one day, and all day long she would say Buddha, then one day she would all day long repeat Dhamma, and one day all day long she would repeat Sangha. And that's how she's getting through this. I was so humbled when she said that. What a beautiful way of turning a simple chant into a powerful way of, bringing the Dhamma alive into very, very tragic situations. No obstacle is too great if we have that kind of faith, reverence for the practice and its potential to transform us and help us find our way through. So I'd like to encourage you in the four royal efforts and in developing and perfecting this precious vehicle in your lives. Tonight, tomorrow, one day at a time. Thank you for your patience.